bring you up to speed on a couple of things, and then we'll get into the study tonight. Um, uh, yesterday, um, a, a, a few, quite a few of us, I, I saw a number of familiar faces in Sacramento. Uh, Michael was there. He, he drove up on Monday. Um, John Mink was up there, Micah, Elijah, my two boys, me. Um, and it was, it was really remarkable. Um, I, I got really sick the night before I got, uh, food poisoning and, uh, got a call from a member of our congregation who wanted to fly with me. I had to be back for an ad hoc economic development meeting for the city. And, uh, so, you know, the flight was at seven ten in the morning. So you had to get up early, get to Burbank. So I was up at like four fifty, just feeling terrible. Uh, get to the airport, and on on the way there, uh, my friend called and said that they'd had back issues, and, and it happened the night before, and they're not going to make it. And I was hurrying to get there because I was afraid they were going to be upset if I didn't go. Uh, and I, there was it, everything in me not to turn around and go back, but I went I went ahead and uh, caught the flight, uh, landed, took an Uber to the capital, feeling miserable, starting to cold sweats and everything, and... Um, and it was a hundred degree temperatures that that day. Uh, we went out to the site and heard testimony after testimony um, of folks that had come out of the homosexual lifestyle, testifying to how their lives were changed. And of course, the opposite side doesn't believe people like that exist. They dismiss it and say, "Well, they were they never had those tendencies or feelings before. They're frauds." And it, it's so tragic because it's dismissing the entirety of someone's life. And you're hearing these testimonies and there's no way around it. You're listening to these lives and brutal testimonies. Uh, one man in particular who had shared about being molested by a pastor, uh, just the, the awful aspect of their life and how they were thrust into same sex attraction in early age, went into the, you know, the gay bar scene in Florida and, and, and how they had rejected everything pertaining to Christianity and how, you know, somewhere along the line, something touched their life and they, they stepped back in Christ changed them. Um, and, and it was, it was profound. Sad part is testimony after testimony, after testimony, after testimony, uh, not one single, uh, state assembly member or state Senator was present, um, at that rally. Did you notice that Michael, there wasn't anyone present. They were just gone. They just didn't bother to show up. And then, um, just as they had concluded the testimonies, um, I, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, uh, my, my son looked at me, and said, dad, you got to get home. I said, I know. He said, I'll drive you to the airport because they had driven up the night before. So he, he goes to get the car. I can't even walk to the car. I'm shaking so bad. It's up on the second floor of this parking complex. I said, I'm going to stay right here. You go get the car. He said, okay. So I'm sitting down in the shade just trying to not pass out. And the white Honda pulls up. I think it's my son. It's on L Street. And I'm saying, well, he's parked there. I guess I better walk over. So I start to walk over there, and I realize it can't be him. Uh, and I, I right then start to kind of black out. And I fall to the ground. I take off my coat. I roll up my sleeves. I unbutton my shirt. Just, and I, 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 I blacked out a little bit. So I get up, and I get back to the seat and sit in the shade, and I'm just you know praying. And then my son pulls up, and I get in the car, crank the air conditioner. He takes me to the airport, uh, get to the airport, uh, get some you know electrolytes in me, and... Uh, drink some fluids. Uh, I feel much better. And, um, I'm sparing you all the gruesome details. Uh, and, and I, I feel much better get on the plane, um, fall asleep, land, able to drive home, make it in time for the, 
the economic development meeting, uh, go to another meeting in regards to the building, which, by the way, found out this week all permits are completed. Uh, I mean, approved, all the building permits. Um, it, it's going to be taken off really quick from here on out. Yeah, amen. That's a huge answer to prayer. And it just collapsed last night. Um, then found out the ruling was, I think, uh, 7 to 2. No, 5 to 2. It has to be 7. So it was 5 to 2? One didn't vote. So it, it passed the, the, the hearing, and, and they're moving forward to vote it into law. Uh, and, and my comment is, and, and this is how I've always held, and, and you're hearing testimony after testimony, and, and, and my feeling is, um, what is the natural inclination of man? And we're going to see this in, in the, the study in, in 1 Corinthians. You know, the, the natural inclination of man is, I, take, I was going to show you two pictures. Uh, I had a classmate in high school. You can Google this person. His name was Michael McClure, M-C-C-L-U-R-E, Michael McClure. We were both on the swim team together. I was a swimmer. He was a diver. He also participated in a couple of the relays. We knew each other. Uh, we were same year in school, uh, classmates. He's been on television. Uh, he's uh, polyamorous, uh, meaning he has many lovers. Uh, many, he's in a multiple marriage kind of thing. It's almost like polygamy, but it's different. I'm not sure how. Um, and, and this is his life. And we both grew up in the same community, both graduated at the same time, both didn't really have much of a Christian upbringing. And Mike went this direction, I went that direction. And, and uh, we, we couldn't be more different. In, in regards to our views of sexuality. And we both live in the United States of America. Pretty fascinating that we are in a nation that's, that, that you have the freedom to participate in that. Well, this AB 2943 shuts down that freedom. You can get into a same-sex attraction, but you're not allowed to get out. There's, and, and even though you have testimony after testimony after testimony, people who've come out of a same-sex attraction, you will be fined and, and face lawsuit. Uh, from the state if, if you know, you, you receive remuneration or funding of counseling anyone out of a same-sex attraction. That's a violation of the First Amendment. And it's going to go straight to the Supreme Court. And they're, they're already filing lawsuits. And we heard that case. And so that was, that was, uh, that was yesterday. Um, and, uh, and I expected it to pass. I, I, I believe it, it was going to pass. But the tragedy is, it is so unfair um, that here we have a constitution that's very clear and you have a state legislature that is bypassing the U.S. Constitution, even the California Constitution. You just read um, Article 1, Sections 2 and 4 of the California State Constitution. Just, it's just awful government. Nobody sees this, and it's tragic. And, and then, um, uh, you know, I, but I took great heart in listening to these testimonies of folks that couldn't have been more burned out by the church and yet still love the Lord and are committed to, to seeing people understand this. And, and to see what the church has done over time, how they've failed uh, this community of folks who've been hit with same-sex attraction through the course of their life. Um, it, it's, it's sad. It really is. So uh, it, was, it was an interesting day. Um, on a side note, I wanted to show you this. Uh, can we bring up the picture. Uh, so this is the, the drawings for the, do you have the clicker by chance? Can you bring me the clicker? 
So this is a drawing of the sanctuary, um, kind of what's going to be taking place. And um, I want to show you a little bit of it, and then we'll get into the study this evening. Take your time. Sorry. Thanks, man. <laughs> How do we... Uh, this may not even help. Let me see. Do we have the pointer on here? Oh, there. It does work. Why isn't it working there? It's on my finger. I'm just kidding. It's not laser. It's not going to burn you. <laughs> Oh, it's not working, so I don't know what to tell you. Um, I'll point, and then you can all look over here. So uh, the large area here, you can see written sanctuary. I, I don't have any elevated views of it, but it's pretty remarkable. It's beautiful. It's already been filled in. The conduit's been run. Um, we'll have the entry hall, the foyer, or foyer, uh, the teen multipurpose room where we'll do the dance classes and everything. It's going to stay the same as it is now. The elementary section, in time with approval, we'll build classrooms in that far left section where it says elementary. Uh, the babies will be in there with the walkers and there'll be a, uh, bathrooms in that location, bathrooms in that location. In uh, this section here is going to be offices. There'll be a kitchen there for the multi-purpose room. Uh, that'll be a coffee section right above the foyer. You see that. Over here, uh, we have restrooms for the uh, sanctuary. And we're not sure what we're going to do with this room. It might be a teen room. We're not sure. We're going to leave this exterior one untouched for now. Um, and actually, as of today, we just kind of, we made plans. Um, <laughs> we made plans to put in a baptismal so you can get baptized in the church. So we'll take a look at that and see if it's feasible. So far, we're under budget. Um, and any questions on it? Yeah, Tom? We do. We do. It's a big, giant room to the right called Sanctuary. Yeah. Really wide doors, everything. Yeah. You're funny. <laughs> Anyone else? Any questions? Yes. Two and three-year-old's room? Uh, it's all going to be in the elementary section where we're going to build classrooms. Yeah. Uh, we, we need to get approval. Um, and we're... Initially moving in, we're going to have sections for each of the grades. We're going to figure out how to kind of work that, whether it be the section here or the section here, because we're not going to put the offices in right away. We're not going to put anything. So there'll be plenty of rooms to segment the ages. Um, but once we get occupancy, then we're going to start to kind of build rooms in there. We need to get occupancy first. Does that help? Good. What's the timeline of moving in? Timeline. Uh, good question. I, I'm praying that we get in middle of August. We need to be out of here June 1st. I mean, excuse me, September 1st. We're late. Uh, We need to be out of here September 1st. That's when our lease is up. Uh, So, and and everything I've been told is we're going to make that deadline. Yeah? I think it can hold upwards of 450. Yeah. So this this on on a tight Sunday is 320. No, no, 320. Really pack it, but we're not really packed right now. 320, and, you know, first class seating, about four, 450. If we do it Southwest Coach, it's probably get 500 in there. (laughs) Any other questions on that? All right. One service, there'll be two services. 
Uh, there'll be a fish tank, yeah. Uh, the fish tank, fish tank uh, depending on where Kevin Golan wants to put it, um, we're thinking uh, either right by the coffee location where the offices are, that, that section there, or putting it by the storage right there between the two bathrooms because you'll have plumbing. I wanted to do something in the foyer with a round tank and plumbing, but it's um, cost prohibitive at this point. We have really great plans, but no money. The good news is all the money we need to do everything we want, we have it, but it's still in the pockets of the people who haven't given it yet. So we're, we're waiting for that. <laughs> You like that. Uh, Any other questions and we'll get into the study? That's it? Okay, good. Well, let's open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if we could. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And before we we read out of it, I want to kind of divert your attention a little bit. We're looking at a church in Corinth that uh, has had very little effect on, on the community. Um, Paul had spent a year and a half there pouring into their lives. They knew the word of God probably better than any group or any church on the planet. And uh, uh, time passes. Paul's in Ephesus. He's hearing about this church imploding, a man sleeping with his father's wife. Um, they've got, they're suing one another. They're getting drunk at the communion table. I mean, the whole church is imploding. And this is a city that has all kinds of sexual dysfunction. The one area where they can make an enormous inroad and stand out and culturally transform this community would be in the way that they, they, they view family, the way they view sexuality. And yet, to the contrary, um, in, in the, the lesson we had last week, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, they're saying what you're doing isn't even spoke, spoken among the pagans. I mean, you guys have taken it to a whole new level. They don't even address it. And, and you all are embracing it, and you're proud of it. And Paul says it shouldn't be so. Um, and there's really, there, there's no contrast between God's people and the world. And, and they're making no difference in this culture that is really dysfunctional and struggling. And, and, and Paul is calling him to account and he's going to do two things in chapter six. He's going to show them who they are and what they've been called to, but he's going to go through this whole picture because they begin to sue one another. Uh, lawsuits start to take place, um, because they had the law in, in, in the Roman world and they figured this is a way that they could get it, uh, something done. But before I get into the study, I want to show you uh, a study that's been occurred, uh, that's occurred, and, and it was an article that Pastor Tony sent me, and I was really moved by it because I've suspected this a long time. And real quick, before I read the article, what kind of an impact has the church had on California in the last 50 years? I mean, this is, this is the hotbed of Christianity developing and churches growing, uh, Saddleback. I mean, that was phenomenal, explosive growth church. And, and you look, most of the mega churches are in California. Focus on the family began here. We can go down Dr. Walter Martin, Chuck Smith, the Calvary Chapel movement, Vineyard. I mean, boom, Harvest Crusades, Somebody Loves You Crusades, explosive growth, 10,000% growth with Calvary Chapels alone, let alone every other denomination. Chuck Swindoll, uh, Jack Hayford, uh, John MacArthur, every major radio teacher that you can think of, California. And what is the impact that we've had in the culture? And how have we... Well, California's a mess. We lead the nation in abortion. Just, just settle on that one. 
stop and just, you know, ruminate on that a little bit. We are the authors in that period of time of no fault divorce, transgender bathroom. We're, we, this is us. And, and we, we celebrate the fact that we're culturally relevant, but we've had no influence on the culture. And I want to read this to you. Has the rise of megachurches elevated our communities? Communities with successfully growing churches should be feeling the impact of those churches on their overall culture. For over 25 years, I've lived and pastored in Orange County, this author says. In the last 50 years, uh, this country has experienced as much megachurch success as anywhere else on earth. We've given birth to the Crystal Cathedral, Calvary Chapel, the Vineyard, TBN, Saddleback Church, many other megachurches and ministries. We haven't just grown a lot of megachurches. We've started the mega movements. So if there's anywhere on earth where the overall moral and spiritual climate should be higher than it was 50 years ago, it's Orange County where we have had so many successful stories of church growth. But has Orange County become a more church-going place in the past 50 years, a more Christian place, a more moral place, a more godly place? You don't need to live here to know that the answer to those questions are no, 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 and you aren't seriously asking me that question, are you? Instead, it's obvious that the culture of our country and maybe uh, of our county and maybe our country has been more impacted by Disneyland than by all our churches combined, including the church I pastor. Sadly, not, uh, this is the author, not us. Sadly, the cultural influence of our churches probably even lags a little bit behind TV shows like The O.C., Real Housewives. Um, incidentally, I'm married to a Real Housewife of Orange County that... that uh, that show ain't it. Uh, he's just joking. Let me get back to it. You're not following me, maybe. Shouldn't the, shouldn't the moral and spiritual climate be rising in the communities where megachurches are thriving? If individual congreg- congregational growth is as important as we're told it is, shouldn't the moral and spiritual climate be rising in the communities where megachurches are thriving? But that's not the case, not in my county and not in other regions experiencing mega church growth. This probably sounds like an indictment on megachurches, but it truly isn't meant to be. It's simply a reality we need to be aware of and take seriously. Most megachurches have done great ministry in their communities. They've led people to Jesus, fed the poor, mended marriages, helped recovering addicts, and so much more. It's likely that the spiritual and moral slide of their communities would have been faster and steeper without the influence of good, healthy churches, both large and small. But is there any region on earth where the rise of megachurches has elevated the moral and spiritual climate of its surrounding culture? There may be some. I hope there are, but I don't know of any, the author says. Has someone done a study on this that I'm not aware of? If so, I'd love to know the results. If not, maybe this post will spark someone to do one. After all, one of the primary tenets of the church growth movement is that churches that reach their communities will grow. If that's true, then the flip side must be true too. Communities with successfully growing churches should be feeling the impact of those churches on their overall culture. If we don't have an answer to this, isn't it important to find out? As my church growth friends like to say, if you mean it, measure it. We have to stop making assumptions and find out what our relentless drive for numerical congregational growth really costs and what it's actually worth. It doesn't matter that our church impresses other pastors if it's not impacting our own neighborhood. If it doesn't matter that our church impresses other pastors, if it's not impacting our our own neighborhood, the author says, but then finally says, so what is the best way for a church to impact their community for the better? The evidence from my county suggests that the answer isn't merely building bigger churches. So it is more churches or better churches or a combination of them all? If so, what do better churches look like? 
I am not blaming megachurches in any way for the cultural slide of our uh, for the cultural slide of our culture or my county. After all, our church has been in this county for over 50 years too. None of us has an exemplary record on this issue. I'm merely asking sincere questions if I don't have answers for them. But these questions matter because without them, we won't be keeping our eyes open for the answers. Um, And that was in Christianity Today. And again, Calvary chapels have been here for 51 years in California. And we've gone from the fifth largest GDP to the seventh, depending on the, the numbers you look at. And all the social... Uh, barometers in California declining. Where Where is the power of the church? Where is it? I mean, we all raise our hands, receive the Lord. We all feel that we're saved from death unto life. Our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. Yes? We're saved by grace through faith. We love that. But where is the cultural transformation that is brought about by the body of Christ? In Wales, they had to retrain the pack animals after the Great Awakening because the, 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 the animals, the pack animals working in the mines didn't know how to take commands without someone cussing at them. And so when revival hit, they stopped cussing and the animals wouldn't operate. You've heard the barbershop quartet. You know where that came from is the police officers in Wales had nothing to do because no one was breaking the law that they began to sing in churches and they came up with a barbershop quartet. They had a large number of bankruptcies um, during the, the Welsh revival because the bars shut down. I mean, this is, these are fascinating statistics of a change of culture when, when Christ really takes a hold of people. But it seems like there's only so far we'll go with this. And here, this church is planted in the middle of misery, trained and equipped better than any church up to that point. And Paul's writing them a letter that they're imploding. And, and it begins, let me take you to the passage of Scripture. Um, here we go. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm only going to read a portion, then I'll get back to. Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, um, you know what, let me pray in them. Well, let's, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll do a little bit backwards. Let's stand, please. Paul says, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. I mean, there's no testimony. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you would go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now, by the way, that statement, and such were some of you, that's a violation of AB 2943. You may have been in that lifestyle, whatever that is, just... Pick one of those topics, and if I'm going to counsel you out of the 
any one of those laws, and, and I, I counsel you out of that and write a book on it, and you pay me for that book that I wrote, I'm in violation of AB 2943. And such were some of you. I just want you to know that. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both in uh, both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raises up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. A lot to cover. Let me pray over that because I really, we might even take two Wednesdays on this one. Lord, please guide and direct us through this passage. It's just rich with, with commands and insights and understanding. Holy Spirit, please, I pray that you would illuminate our minds, that we would receive the truths therein, and our lives would be deeply touched and profoundly changed. Lord, please, I I pray that it would minister to us mightily this night, and we commit it to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you. Paul asked six questions in, in two separate topics that we'll cover momentarily. One is he's dealing with this idea of of lawsuits amongst brethren. I want to read this to you. 1910, a man named Olaf Olofsson was uh, desperate for cash, so he sold his body to an institute in Sweden to be used for medical research after he died. But in 1911, he unexpectedly inherited a fortune and decided to buy himself back. And to his surprise, the institute wouldn't cooperate. Shocked by this, the Olofsson uh, flatly refused to donate his body, so the institute actually sued for breach of contract. The court found that not only did Olofsson owe his body to the Institute, but since he'd had two teeth removed without the Institute's permission, Olofsson had illegally tampered with their property. There are about 1,350,000 lawyers in America today. That's a lot of lawyers. Now, if you go uh, per 10,000 population um, of, of the 52 states and uh, the capital and maybe, you know, outlying regions like Guam or American Samoa or Puerto Rico, uh, if, you, if you do the tally in each of these states, um, the most liberal states politically have the most attorneys per capita. Now, are you ready for this one? Per Per 10,000 population, Washington, D.C. has 788 attorneys per 10,000 population. So where there's political power, there's a heavy concentration of attorneys. California ranks 10th um, in the nation. We have approximately 43 attorneys per 10,000 residents, which is 
42 too many. <laughs> New York has 89 per 10,000. Maryland, Massachusetts, all these, you know, New Jersey, most of the eastern seaboard, very high in attorney to population ratio. Um, and, and there's reasons for that. Now, one of the ways that you can accomplish something is just to exhaust people through litigation. That's one of the reasons why, even though it was a frivolous lawsuit that they filed against the city in regards to our occupying a piece of property that's zoned for religious use, zoned for a church, we purchased it in the, in the public market. It was open to everybody. We did due diligence. We went through. Even still, they sue just trying to slow the process, get a court order, a stay of development, whatever it is, just throw it up and hope that it sticks. And in California, it's such that there's no problem towards the one who's suing. They, they don't have to pay damages or any of the issues that the, that the person that's being sued has to deal with. Um, and, and so we become a very litigious uh, community. Here's a couple. This is an interesting lawsuit in 2008. A man sues a family of a boy he ran over. Thomas Delgado sued the family of a 17-year-old boy he hit and killed for the damage that the boy's body did to his Audi. Delgado was speeding at the time, but since the boy was cycling alone at night without reflectors or helmet, the driver wasn't charged with anything other than being a complete idiot. Under public pressure, he later dropped his lawsuit, but he tried to sue the the family for damage. Uh, A sleeping student sued a teacher for waking him up, March 2008, Danbury, Connecticut, 15-year-old... Vincent uh, Robacher sued his teacher for slamming her palm on the desk to wake him up during class, an action that he claimed caused his ear damage. A man sued Michael Jordan for looking like him. Uh, Alan Heckard sued former basketball star Michael Jordan and Nike uh, founder Phil Knight for $832 million, claiming that they had made Jordan such a recognizable figure that he had suffered personal harm from being repeatedly mistaken for the basketball player. Did he win? Does it matter? <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I, I get it, though. A man sued the homeless for $1 million. Interesting. Uh, Carl Kemp, owner of a ritzy antique store in Manhattan's Madison Avenue, sued four homeless people uh, who congregate in front of his shop because they scare off potential customers. The amount of the suit, $1 million payable, apparently in shopping carts full of aluminum cans. Uh, let's see. Oh, this, this is an interesting one. A man sued his wife uh, for, for the donated kidney. After Long Island, Dr. Richard Batista was slapped with the divorce papers from his cheating wife. He decided he'd had enough and sued her for the return of a gift he'd given her eight years prior, a kidney. Uh, if that wasn't feasible, he'd settle for $1.5 million. Oh, here, this is a... Two well-meaning teenage girls in Durango, Colorado, decided one summer night to bake cookies for their neighbors. They packaged the baking treats in plastic wrap with a heart-shaped message, wishing the recipients a good night. When they knocked at the door of Juanita Renee Young, the woman became so terrified that someone was outside her house that she suffered an anxiety attack, successfully sued the girls for $930 to cover a trip to the emergency room. Her request for money to cover pain and suffering was denied. I can go on, but I'll stop. The idea is, why do you sue? You feel that you've been wronged. You want some sort of restitution. Uh, you, you, you want revenge. That's a real good one, don't you? You wronged me and I want revenge. Don't raise your hand. 
Um, no, 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 let's do this. How many people have ever been involved in testifying or a part of, you don't have to be necessarily one suing or being sued, but how many people have been involved in a lawsuit in some capacity? Raise your hand. I have to raise mine. And, and everyone, no, keep your hands up, please. Keep your hands up. Everyone who really loved the process, please keep your hand up. As I expected, nobody. All right, of all of you, yeah, how many of you won? It was like worth your time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. When you say one, like, can we share in the wealth of this? Or you just got revenge or uh, never mind, I won't ask. (laughs) Are Christians allowed to sue other Christians? According to the text that Paul wrote. No? I'm sorry? Are, are you allowed, though, according to the Lord? Any, don't answer this because I don't want to put you on the spot, but husband and wife married Christians, a divorce attorney? Was it, were they wrong? Were they wrong? Cheating spouse, not wanting to reconcile? If you're the if you're being sued or you're being taken to divorce court, do you just t- take it, have it all? Do you fight for it? You guys see the dilemma a little bit. Anybody working with? How about if you're an attorney? Are you allowed to be an attorney and be a Christian? And and let's go further. If they come in and there's two Christians who want a divorce, are you allowed to help one and litigate? And defend or fight? <laughs> well, have a wonderful night. God bless y'all. We call it family law, but it's just family law. All right, let's take a look at the passage, see what the Lord says. Dare any of you. Now, as I've, let me, let me clear my notes a little bit so I can make some room. Because I want to do this right. All of you seem very perplexed and anxious. Um, Paul asks six questions, uh, and they fall into two divisions. And we're going to take a look at three of them. Uh, the first one's found in verse 2. Second is in verse 3. And then there's one in um, verse 9. So look at verse 2. Do you not know that saints will be judged, uh, that saints will judge the world? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? And then you drop down to verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there's three questions that the, the Apostle Paul asks, but he does it in this idea where he says, uh, do you not know? It's, it's this idea that uh, there's, a, there's a touch of sarcasm. Um, are you ignorant of these basic facts, Christian? Are, are you that stupid that you don't understand this? That's probably a better way to do it. Are you that stupid that you don't understand what it means to be a Christian? He's talking to the church. Are you that stupid that you don't know that saints will judge the world? Are you that stupid that you do not know that we will judge angels? Are you that stupid that you don't know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Are you that ignorant? Are are you that unstudied in the scriptures? Are you that shallow in your faith 
takes on a different meaning, yeah? He goes further, he says, dare any of you having a matter against a brother go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Why is that? Why would Paul say, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? What is, what is our great commission at the end of Matthew? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, right? Preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a testimony, a testimony to the world. And what does it say that you'll know, they'll know, you'll know they're my, my, my disciples by what? I'm sorry? By their love for one another. Got that? So what kind of love is it that I'm going to take everything you have and, and uh, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to sue your family, I'm, you're, you'll, you'll be so low you'll have to look up to see down when I'm done with you. And, and then the arguing. And before a, a judge. And, you, and the judge does it, has no profession of faith, the attorneys have no profession of faith, and you have two people just tearing each other's eyes out over every nitpicking thing and every frustrating thing you've ever experienced, you're laying it out in front of everybody. Are you tracking me on this? And listen, I don't think there's a person in the room who hasn't been in a place or been affiliated with someone who's gone through something like this. We've all been affected. Lawsuits are terrible. We hate them, don't we? And in this case, what he's saying is you have a testimony to other people. How, and and Tom, you touched on it and, 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 and Ted and Brett did, what, what are Christians supposed to do? What would you say? Agree with your adversary. Agree with your adversary on your way to the judge. Right? So how do you agree with somebody who's disagreeable? Yeah. You agree with your adversary on your way to the judge. So that when you get there, the scripture says, you know, he, he, he won't take you for everything you're worth. I have news for you. Has, has anyone been ripped off in a court of law? Just, just cheated like you can't imagine. Let's, let's put the hands up on that one. Awful, yes? And I mean, your case was cut and dry, clear as can be. My, my brother-in-law, I officiated a wedding uh, for his son and for his daughter-in-law. And, and the daughter-in-law's dad is an attorney. And, and he's really good friends with my brother-in-law. And, and their children ended up marrying each other, which is really cool. And it was, it's really kind of an interesting story. My brother-in-law, Dan Coletti, is a developer in Las Vegas. He had this case where, you know, the guy had a breach of contract. It was, it was so clear that it was a violation of their agreement. And uh, they, it went to court. And Dan, my brother-in-law, lost. And he's like, how did I lose this? And he looks over at the attorney that just devastated his attorney and wiped him and mopped the floor with him. That he, he, at the end, and this is how my brother-in-law works, he's brilliant. He just said, okay, I lost. And he walks over to the other guy's attorney and says, you're good. From now on, you're going to be my attorney. And they became the best of friends, and that's how it worked. And, and, and if, you're, if you're that good that you can win this case when everything is stacked against you, I need you as an attorney. That's pretty smart, Right? But he still got beat. And he didn't know how to play in that world. 
Now, when it says agree with your adversary, and, and if we look at Matthew 18, if, if, Trent, if I have an issue with you, right? You've, you've wronged me. Matthew 18 says that I'm supposed to go to you one-on-one and try to win you. Win. Not get revenge, not get, you know, I have, I have to win him as a brother. If he doesn't yield, then I have to bring witnesses testifying to that. If he still doesn't do that, then I bring the elders of the church. And if he still doesn't agree, then we treat him like a tax collector. I just do business with you, but I don't have fellowship with you. See ya. And a tax collector is we only see those folks in the court of law anyways or anything dealing with legal issues. So that's how we, you don't recognize our friendship. You don't recognize the word of God. You don't understand mercy and grace and trying to reconcile. And you're, you're not part of the fellowship anymore. And, and these folks are testifying to the fact that you are unwilling to yield and that's it. And all we're saying is we want to win you, but this isn't a family and you're not treating us like a family. This is a, this is legal business to you. So you're a tax collector. But the whole goal of Matthew 18 is to win that brother. Now, if they want to take us to a court of law, as Tom pointed out in the passage of scripture, we're to agree with our adversary on our way to try to avoid that. Because when you get to a court of law, as many of you raise your hands, it's no fun when you lose. And they will rake you over the coals. We won the case at Little Oak School, but it cost us a fortune. And that was even with pro bono work. It was still expensive. Just filing fees was expensive. And what did we get for it? Nothing. We just got to continue doing what we purposed to do. Now, we did protect religious liberty and, and those things. It was, it was important. But the scripture says, you have a testimony. You have a testimony before the unbelieving world. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? This is, this is of critical importance. Um, and this is one of the, the issues that, that Paul raises, that we as Christians will judge we will judge the saints. Um, John thirteen, John thirteen thirty five. Men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then you see Matthew nineteen twenty eight. I say to you that uh, if if you follow me, uh, somebody turn to Matthew nineteen twenty eight, please. Anyone want to read Matthew nineteen twenty eight? And while we're at it, if somebody will turn to Jude, and there's only one chapter, Jude verses 14 and 15. Michelle, do you got it? Nice and loud so I can hear you. So, so we're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, we have some serious authority here. Are you tracking that? Who's got Jude 14 and 15? It's, it's an obscure, tiny little book. Go ahead. You were too late. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, you're not even ready. Yes. Bring it. Oh, come on. Who's got it? Yielded. So there's even judgment that we'll have. And there's a picture too of this idea in the millennium that we'll be judging others in the millennium. This is intense. We're going to have this authority. The the second thing that 
that the apostle Paul points out in the first series of three questions. He says, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest of matters? You're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to be judging the world. Don't you think with the wisdom of the scriptures, the mercy and grace of God, the lawgiver himself who dwells in you as a temple of the Holy spirit. Don't you think that if you yield, you're going to have enough wisdom to be able to reconcile that within the body of Christ. Hello. Then why do you yield to the world's deal? And I'll tell you why you yield because an attorney comes up to you and says, you can get rich. I can make you some money. You deserve better. Anyone ever been in a car accident where you're like, boom, you get hit and you're like, Hey, uh, the bumper's bad. You fix that. We're good. You know, come to think of it. My neck is a little stiff. And if I get five chiropractic appointments, I'm only going to get this much of a settlement. But if I get seven chiropractic I'm going to get this much of a settlement. And the attorney says, and if you just go for a full year, we can get you even a bigger settlement. And we do just do a small little disability aspect. We can get you payments. Oh, well, I I could use a chiropractic. And if it's paid for, I mean, that's, you know, that, that makes sense. And I, I do need a little extra money. That's not free. It's extortion. Somebody's going to pay for it. I remember one time I was working at Walmart I I was on my break. I'm sitting in the cafe. Uh, um, A customer goes to take his tray, trips, uh, putting it in the trash can. The cup falls, and some of the the Coke spills on the the pants of a man, his wife, and his two children. I saw it, and I go, oh, let me get that. I pick the thing up. I'm wiping it up. I help clean it up. And the man says, where's your manager? I say, he's right over there. What, What can I do for you? He says, go get him. I said, well, is there anything I can help you with? Because he, he certainly, I need a new pair of pants. I, I said, really? I, 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 I imagine he'd be happy to wash them. Huh? No, 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 new pair of pants. I said, well, I can't help you with that. He said, get your manager and do it now. Very rude. And I said, yes, sir. Because at Walmart, customer's king. I went over, got the manager. Manager came over. Said, how can I help you, sir? He says, I want a new pair of pants and I want a bicycle for my kids. Why is that? He says, well, the person over there spilled on my pants. He says, I'll sue you. He said, well, let me go get you some pants and I'll go get you, what is it, a bicycle? By the time he left, he had the bicycle and two pairs of pants and he had an outfit for his kids. And you know why? You, you, you want to manage Liability. It's cheaper. And he knew how to play it. Anyone who's a business owner has already been through this. Good luck trying to run a business in this state. It's rough. And yet as Christians, we get into that mentality and Corinth was inundated with it. They were inundated with it and they're trying to figure out how to operate in this context. How do we as Christians live differently than the world? By the way, we treat one another. The world will want to be a part of what we're doing. I'll share this with you. You know how, how pleasant it is to be able to do something on a handshake and you don't have to fill out any contract. Do you realize we are walking into this building, this building in Dos Vientos, we're walking into this building. Do you realize I haven't signed one piece of paper? Do you realize it's been on a handshake or telephone call? Do you realize that relationship has opened this up that we just walk in and occupy it? Try doing that in the world. 
Try doing that in the world. I, I, the, the person who's building it out, they're, they're in already uh, with the stuff that's been done, the painting. Have you seen it? It's beautiful, the painting. They've done the eaves. They've done, they've done the plastering work. They've run the conduit. They've, they've demolished the pool, filled it in, compacted it. They've cut through doors. They've, they've done an enormous amount of work. We haven't paid one penny yet. Not, I haven't written one check. Well, we're carrying it. We'll do it when the time comes. I know the church, you know, we'll, we'll take care of that. Why is that? Relationship. This is what the Lord commands of us to do. And, and I'm, Tony, when we got the bill this week, I said, pay it right away. Get on that. And he said, I will. And so this is that picture. And, and, and Paul says, you've got to realize, and this is what's so important, is Paul is saying, you need to remember who, what you are. You need to remember that you are children of the king, that you are going to judge the earth. You're going to judge the world. You're going you're gonna to have judgment over angels, and don't you think that you're, you can judge in the smallest of matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? He says, how much more things that pertain to this life? If you then have judgments concerning those pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Do you pick some sort of knucklehead and say, hey, you know what? Uh, the two of us are having an issue. Will you, will you weigh in on it? What's it pertaining to? Well, it's pertaining to a business contract that the two of us agreed to. And uh, there's a couple of state codes that we... Yeah, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, go ahead and rule, though. Go ahead and rule. Well, it's a medical issue, and it's a malpractice, but it's between the two of us. And it said, I don't know anything about medicine. I don't, know, I don't even know what the word malpractice means. It's okay. Just, just decide something. Don't you think that'd be stupid? How about this? Let's pertain to everything relating to our testimony of the earth and how we dwell with one another. As far as a testimony that you'll know they're Christians by their love for one another. And let's throw all that out the window and give it to somebody who doesn't even profess a relationship with God and say, you judge. That's the same. You take it. And, and forget about the Ten Commandments. Forget about moral absolutes. Forget about Judea law. You just come up with your subjective, kind of progressive, secularist idea of law. You just move the, you just move and decide what you want. Let's go to that. Forget about the fact that, you know, marriage is a covenant and that, you know, it, it's all or nothing. And it's, let, let's, let's do no fault divorce. And you judge on that. Is that a testimony? No. And, and the Apostle Paul says, this is a vital importance that we do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge. I say this to your shame. This is so dumb. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren according to the scripture, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers, this isn't about you. This is about the lost world. You're so committed to your pound of flesh that you don't give a rip about the rest of the world. It's like the young kids saying, I, I know they don't believe in the Lord, but I love them and I really want to continue dating them. And I look at them and I say, you love them so much that you would ruin a testimony of them knowing who the Lord is so that you can be happy in that relationship. Maybe I didn't make that clear enough. I always talk about you know, a holy vessel at a party. And the Bible says that we're, we're vessels, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and you, you remember the story with Daniel where uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar, I think it was, was poor, I'm sorry? Huh? 
Darius, whatever. They're pouring, pouring wine and partying. And then meeny, meeny, tekafar. So you've been waiting the bounce and found wanting. And at this point, the idea is these were the holy vessels and they were partying with them. And, and the scripture says, you know, your life will be demanded of you this night. The vessels are still holy. They're still separated unto the Lord. And as Christians, we have our get out of hell free card. And we're going to go to heaven. And that vessel can be at a party and you can pour wine in that vessel and you can fondle that vessel and you can mess with that vessel. And everyone who does is going to be condemned. But you're still going to heaven. And you, you, you get your get out of hell free card. And you can have your cake and eat it too. But don't, don't worry about a soul at the party because it's all about you. Does that, now, does that make sense? And here, I just want justice. I want revenge. I don't care about the testimony. I don't care about non-believers. I don't care about dragging the name of Christ in this community. Everyone does it. Everyone sues. Everyone does it. Why shouldn't I? And Paul is saying, this is to your shame. Just pick somebody in the church and ask for their wise counsel. Brett, how many times have you mediated between, in, in, in ministry, how many times have you mediated between couples that are ready to have a divorce and God reconciles through wisdom? Do you know how much money those couples saved by sitting with a pastor and mediating? And I'm glad they went to Brett because if they came to me and they're arguing like little children, I get so frustrated. I go, you don't need a pastor. Go get an attorney and waste your money and ruin your family. Because if you're going to sit in my office and act like little kids who are children of the king who have been bought with the blood of Christ and you're going to act so stupid and, and, and do whatever you can to ruin your family, you go ahead. Because obviously anything I'm saying, you're not listening to because you just continue to argue relentlessly. And that's why no one comes to me for counsel. (laughs) And listen, we're all, we're all affected by divorce. I'm not here to dump on you, but the reality is, do you know how much money people have saved by spending time with Brett and how broke they are having spent time with me? And so Paul, Paul says, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. It's just so tragic. It's such a dis- destruction of our testimony. We're, we're better than that. Now, therefore, it is already, verse seven. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. The fact that you're entering into a lawsuit you've already declared the church has failed to be able to remedy by grace and mercy and truth and reconciliation as Christ has forgiven you. So forgive one another uh, as I have loved you. So love one another. He, uh, he, um, to the level you forgive, you will be forgiven. Um, I mean, we can go through all the scriptures and, and all these, Oh, mm, praise the Lord. I've been forgiven. My sins have been cast as far as East is from the West. We remember no more. God is so good. Hallelujah. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you do to me? I'm taking you to court. But, but, but the scriptures, scripture schmiptures, I'm, I'm taking you to court. I have to be careful about what I almost said. <laughs> I'm taking you to court. I'm going to sue, I'm going to sue every, sue you for everything you've got. And then whatever your family has. But what is a testimony? I don't care about a testimony, but you've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works and it's mercy and grace. And yeah, that's great. I'll receive it, but I'm not giving it. I'm not giving it. I want justice. Careful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hello? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Otherwise, there'd be nobody in this room. What's mercy? Not getting what you deserve. 
Okay, here we are today. How many people? God is right in front of you. He's got all of your sins listed, all your wrongs listed. And he's, he, he's standing, his eyes are on fire. And it's you standing before him and you're shaking and quivering. And he says, do you want mercy or do you want justice? But whatever you're going to dispense, you have to first receive. Okay, answer. Is that right? Thank you, God, for my mercy. I'm just so grateful. Okay, now, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then the person wrongs you. What do you want? I want mercy. Never heard that from anyone's mouth as long as I've been the pastor of this church. I want judgment. I want justice. Who are you people? I'm asking me the same question. Isn't that what we want when we're wrong? We want justice. Yes? And Paul's saying, wait a minute. In the body of Christ, can't we at least show an example of what it's like to receive mercy and extend mercy? Can't we work through this? Can't we show the world that there's a different system and a God of grace and mercy? Can't we live this? We have a testimony to unbelievers. That's the whole bottom line. But the unbelievers are irrelevant when it comes to us being wronged. I don't care about a testimony. I want my $2. Never saw that movie. It's a funny one. Anyone seen that movie about the kid with the $2? That's a bad illustration. Sorry. So here we go. Now, therefore, it is already another failure, verse 7, for you to go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? You know what? I'm cheated. He got me good. I got witnesses and Matthew 18 and... I'll let the church decide that. And likelihood is he'll be out of the church. I'll never see a dime of it. But as long as the body of Christ is solid. Can you do it? I mean, the best you're going to get is they're not going to be part of the fellowship anymore. You're not going to get any of your money back. Not a dime. Can you do it? Or is the revenge, the justification, the, is that more important? Because Paul says you, you should rather be cheated. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Who are you cheating? The Lord. What does he want? Testimony. Testimony of what? His mercy and his grace. Now, if a non-believer sues you, you're not bound by that. Lawyer up. Have a great day. I should get a Christian attorney. No, you shouldn't. Get a really good, vicious Jewish attorney. <laughs> Just lawyer up and go to town. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
And he goes right to this. He says, the unrighteous is people who aren't right with the Lord. This idea that you're not right with each other. Remember the vertical and the horizontal? If you're not right with God, you're not going to be right with each other. If his word doesn't mean anything to you, then your relationships with each other doesn't mean anything. If this doesn't govern you, this will certainly not reflect itself. And you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If his word means nothing to you and what he's commanding and, and desiring of his children, if we don't realize who we are and what God has called us to, remember what you are, you're children of, of the king. And then remember to whom you belong, the Lord. Uh, do not be deceived, Paul says. He goes, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. The, the word homosexual is this idea of effeminate, which means soft. I looked at that, this idea of sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We, we stop and we pick the one thing that we can see visibly with our eyes that we can pick out. But if you look through this, thieves, those are folks who cheat on their taxes. Covetous, you want something that someone else has and you lust for it. Drunkards, revilers, people who just always angry, fighting, extortioners. You know, you, you're unscrupulous in your business dealings. Adulterers, idolaters. You, you worship your job more than you worship the Lord. You worship whatever, anything that takes your time, treasures, and talents. And, and you know, yeah, that church is good. Idolaters. I, I'm not really into tithing. I'm not really into giving. And I'm not saying this, that you're going to hell or you're one of these folks. But the idea in all this, because tithing is an issue of grace, but all of these things right here in this picture, these are folks that practice it. And you know you practice it because it takes precedent over your relationship in the church and your relationship with each other. Uh, we've got a few minutes. I'll, I'll finish up. Uh, thieves, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I mean, that right there is the testimony of the church. God is in the business of transforming lives. Let me repeat that. God is in the business of transforming lives. Such were some of you. And you know what's interesting is if you can see yourself as I was, once was, but now I am, it makes it a lot easier to look at someone else as they are and hope that they will become. You start becoming very gracious and merciful. But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. How? By the Spirit of our God. How did that happen that such were some of you? Did you guys pick yourself up by your bootstraps and improve your life so stupendously that we're looking at you and marveling at your morality? Because you're a Christian, you're so much better than the rest of the world. Is that how it happened? Because you just figured out some sort of a self-help book that made you this remarkable human being that now sits before this wretch and, and, and you're just a display of beauty. We, I'm wondering why you're looking at me speaking when we should be looking at you. Are you tracking me? Why are you a Christian? What makes you different? Is it something you did or something that Christ did? Why are you morally transformed and changed? Is it something you did or something Christ did? You were saved by grace. Where does grace come from? It comes out of mercy. Mercy is greater than grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And out of mercy comes grace. And you're saved by grace through faith. 
First, the mercy comes. God's not striking us all dead. That's really sweet. He endeavors and strives with us that we would be reconciled to him. And then when we say, God, I yield, he gives us grace, life and life more abundant. And we're saved by grace through faith. Faith what? Faith that he said it. I believe it. That settles it. Abraham believed God was accredited to him as righteousness. It's a gift of God, not of works. He didn't earn it. Nobody gets to boast. And here you receive it. You were washed. You were sanctified, set apart. Sanctified, set apart. Join with me. Sanctified, say it, set apart. You're not your own anymore. You were sanctified, set apart. For what purpose? As a testimony to unbelievers. You're his now. You were justified. That's a good one. Because we operate every day on that one just as if I'd never sinned. And I'm grateful for that. Every waking moment of the day, the enemy of my soul, the, the Satan, condemns me. Who is he that condemns? Satan. It's a rhetorical question. And he goes, Rob, you did this and this and this today, and God doesn't want anything to do with you, and I don't know why you keep repenting and apologizing for the thing you've been doing for the last 53 years. I don't either. Those things I want to do, I don't do. And those things I don't want to do, those I do. A regiment I am. God, I wanted to remind you about the sin that I did, and, and I promised you I'd never do it again, and I did it again, and I just want to tell you I'm sorry about it, because I don't know what you're talking about. I've cast as far as east or west, and I don't remember it. Oh, that's really cool. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, I appreciate that, Lord. I really do. And as Tom said, on your way to the court with your adversary, who's your adversary, who's, a, who's, a, who's the adversary of the brethren? Devil, there we go. So the devil's telling Rob McCoy, you did this, this, and this. Yeah? He's completely right. He's reminding me of all my sins. Right? So depressing. Do you ever hear that voice? What, why do you think God would want anything to do with you? Yeah? I don't know. Who are you to stand behind? Yeah, I know. And what do you do while he's condemning you? You're right. I agree. And matter of fact, you can add some things there that you didn't even put on. I can help you with your case. And he goes, well, we've got a case and we're going to take it to the judge. And we get to the judge. And he's, he's a vicious attorney. And then I get my attorney. My advocate. Anyone read the scripture? Who's my advocate? Jesus. And there he is. My attorney shows up and the devil goes, oh gosh, not him. <laughs> and he lays out the case and the judge is looking at the case that the devil's laying out against me. He says, if you notice on this date, this time, it's all registered. I have it documented. I have all the evidence. The judge is looking at it. He turns to my attorney. He says, son, God the father. <laughs> my attorney says, son. Maybe you didn't catch that. Son, what do you have to say for your client? Well, Dad. It's true, he did all those things, and they're all listed there. But if you notice, the, the price has been paid, the penalty's been paid for all of those, and it's all covered in my blood. You can't even read them anymore. Ah, it's true, case dismissed. Thank you. Ah, another one. And I, I've agreed with him, and I'm saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. I'm justified. Does that mean I continue in sin that grace may abound? No, what is it? I want everyone else on the face of the earth to experience the grace and the mercy I've received. And the last place that I'm supposed to soil it is in the body of Christ where we treat each other like pagans. You tracking me now? You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Um, 
I've got nine minutes. I'll do this real quickly. All things are lawful for me, but not all things. But let me, let me repeat this. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. So the word all things in the Greek means. Let's try that again. In the Greek, all things means. Okay. All things are lawful for me. Wait a minute. Wait, what? All things are lawful. Anybody in here drink wine? Hello? Okay. I, I do. All right. Any of those who don't drink wine, anyone ever had any NyQuil? <laughs> Baptist whiskey right there. Are you going to hell? I rise and fall before one master, that's the Lord. You can stand in judgment of me, but be careful. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Does it help in your walk with the Lord? Does it help in your testimony to non-believers? That's the question. It's not about you, it's about the lost. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Okay, so you have a glass of wine, you drink, but are you under the power of it? Does it dictate how you live? Do you wake up wanting it and go to sleep thinking about it? Does it dominate you? Are you only happy when? Tracking me? That's a really good barometer. Tracking me still? Because I've got seven minutes and I'm bringing this home. (laughs) And then it says, okay, here's one. This is, this is the thing I just, <laughs> I'm going to insult somebody, but I'm a meat eater. So it's my privilege. Vegetarians are vegans. They need to tell me how awful my diet is. Not all of them, but quite a few of them. How superior their diet is than mine. No doubt. Yours is probably superior. But why is it that all the food you eat, you make it to look like meat? I'm just going to leave it at that. Where were we? I follow dietary laws and Jewish laws. I don't eat bacon. I'm so sorry for you. But I'm grateful to God because there's more for me. Bacon is meat candy. It is a gift from God. And for any of you who just stand in judgment of me, and I remember one Messianic Jew that was in our congregation just, no, pork, mm, verboten. Not acceptable. I'm thinking, you don't know how good it is. Why would he make it and make you dream of it and then say, no. That's not the God I serve. And I love verse 13. Let's read it together, shall we? Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. (laughs) I love it. And it's lawful. I get to have it. (laughs) And it's profitable, too. It makes me happy. So there. Where were we? Anyone disagree with that? I do. Donuts do not. Oh, donuts? You're not a police officer. It's okay. (laughs) That was quick. I don't know where it came from. Now, the body, this is is where we get to the food side. God will destroy both it and them. But here's where he turns. Food is one thing. You eat it. you, you, You eliminate it. That's one thing. End of story. 
But this one, this sin that he's about to bring up, and we're going to spend time, because I only have five minutes, we're going to spend time on it next week. I'm only going to give you a teaser. He says at this passage, in the middle of verse 13, he says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And what he says is, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, this is different. This is a totally different sin. This is, this is heavy. This has consequences beyond anything you're eating or drinking or any of the sexual sin messes with the psyche and the pneuma. It is, it's, it's why there's such an intensity of the enemy to, to, to create complete dysfunction and, and insanity. I mean, why is it that he says that, that, that the, the body of Christ is the bride and he's the groom? And you, you see this picture that the Godhead is, is meant for relationship. And a man will leave his mother and father, be cleaved to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he's going to go through this picture of being joined to a harlot as one body with her. You are experiencing an act of intimacy intended for a husband and wife. And Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, uniting in an act that's supposed to express a, a, a spiritual declaration that the world would marvel at, especially in Corinth. And you've turned it into just something pleasurable for yourself. And we're, we're going to go through this. It is, it is so, the world wants intimacy and they have no idea how to receive it. Every single one of the testimonies in Sacramento began with, I just wanted to be. Amen. 